The COVID-19 pandemic has impacted almost every aspect of our daily lives. Early on, infectious disease experts warned against another wave of COVID cases as we head into the fall and winter, when environmental conditions are much more conducive to a virus spread. As we enter our first fall flu season in the middle of this pandemic, the intersection of these two respiratory viruses leaves us facing a potential twindemic, the collision of COVID-19 and a bad seasonal flu. Today, we speak with Dr. Stephen Young, an expert in microbiology with a background in pathology, virology, and infectious diseases. He's gonna discuss with us what we should know and what steps we can take to protect ourselves during this potential perfect viral storm. I would say I agree with the premise that we will probably see an uptick in the amount of SARS-CoV-2 detections and COVID-19 disease, along with an uptick of the other seasonal respiratory viruses that we see every year. Part of the reason for that is that as the weather cools or gets even cold, people tend to congregate in groups inside, that enhances the spread. So the smaller the area with, in which people are interacting, the larger the likelihood that we will see transmission of these viruses, including SARS-CoV-2, to the human population. Given some of the defensive measures that we're taking in order to avoid infection with COVID-19, is there any correlation between wearing masks and social distancing and hand washing you think that may have an impact on the prevalence of flu? Absolutely. I think if you look at the information in the Southern Hemisphere, as SARS-CoV-2 began to spread, fortunately for us, we were at the end of our respiratory virus season in the United States because I saw a dramatic drop in the number of respiratory virus infections that we were detecting here. And that drop was also seen actually in the Southern Hemisphere where they saw very, very little influenza, but they quickly adopted social distancing and the wearing of masks, increased hand washing. You can see this, the decrease in all infectious disease burden, even in the United States, we've seen dramatic decreases in nosocomial infections. Given that the, you know, the typical treatment for flu, you know, is to stay home, drink plenty of fluids, and see a doctor, not exactly the same way that we would treat someone with COVID-19. What are your thoughts on the combination of hospitalizations that may result from, you know, incidents of flu versus the incidence of COVID-19? Well, in those areas where people are willing to wear masks and socially distance, you'll probably see a decreased amount of spread of influenza. However, I know people are getting tired of those practices. Basically, if those practices discontinue, I think we will see a rapid spread of both influenza, and not only influenza, but all of the respiratory viruses. We do know that we can treat influenza. So the ability to diagnose influenza, particularly early, is helpful because the antivirals that are 
used for influenza are most effective within 48 hours of the onset of symptoms. That's a great segue. When we think about the upcoming flu season and the onset of symptoms, there is a point at which we decide whether or not to see a doctor. If you could talk about how people may react to symptoms this winter as compared to past winters, when there is a question as to whether they might be experiencing the flu or they could be developing COVID-19. You would hope that individuals now have seen the consequences of COVID-19 and will recognize that the symptoms of COVID-19 along with influenza, along with other respiratory viruses overlap. It is difficult to make that determination as to what the clinical presentation is in terms of whether it's COVID, whether it's influenza, or whether it's another respiratory virus. What we hope is that people will, given the severity of COVID and given the problems of transmission of COVID within uh, family units, particularly where there may be vulnerable populations, one would hope that individuals will seek out a diagnosis earlier than they might have in the past where they've been accustomed to, well, I don't need to see a doctor. Oh, wait a minute, I'm really sick, I need to see the doctor. When drugs that work on influenza are not effective later in the course of infection after two to three days of onset of symptoms. So getting tested sooner seems to be a good rule of thumb. And given that there is not currently a test for a variety of respiratory infections, is there some benefit to a single test that would be able to detect either COVID-19 or flu or other respiratory infections? Yeah, I think there are multiple benefits to, to these, what we now call multiplex panels. Many of the multiplex panels have started to include and now have EUA authorization for also detecting COVID-19 or in the process of going through that EUA process. So they will be able to detect the influenza A and B, influenza A and B, RSV, or a whole variety of not only viral pathogens, but a few bacterial pathogens, some of these large multiplex panels that are available that also have COVID-19 within their detection process. So in your lab, how would one clinically distinguish COVID-19 from, say, influenza? Once we know that influenza is in the community, we will primarily test with a multiplex test that would diagnose individuals who have COVID along with influenza A or B or COVID along with influenza A, B, and RSV. And for hospitalized patients, we may even use a more complex or a more multiplex assay that would detect multiple respiratory pathogens, some of which, like the bacteria that are in some of these panels, can be treated with antimicrobials. So then why is it so important to distinguish between different types of infections? In hospitalized patients, particularly during the respiratory season, where wards may fill up, not because of infectious disease, but because of other underlying diseases, you want to try not to cohort individuals with one another with different 
infections. You would probably try to keep your COVID patients in one ward, i.e. they have the same infection, so that the spread of the infection doesn't occur in a given ward, i.e. social distancing of the different wards where you keep your patients. I'm gonna to switch topics a little bit now and, and talk about the role of vaccines. A vaccine for COVID-19 is, is probably a few months out, and yet right now a lot of folks are getting a flu vaccine. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the flu vaccine in preventing what some folks call a twindemic? I don't know that it'll prevent it. <laughs> what we hope is that people will get immunized. And I will tell you, I've already been immunized. My thought process along that line is that that will make me less susceptible <laughs> if I come in contact with individuals who are infected. So obviously what we're trying to do is we're not eliminating influenza, but we're trying to mitigate the potential effects of a twindemic. The other issue is with vaccination, what you hope, even if you do contact influenza, that it will be a milder infection because you were vaccinated and because you primed your immune system, which will lessen the probability that you would need hospitalization. And that means that you are not taking up beds that might be needed to take care of individuals we know that there are some folks who are still debating whether to get a flu shot. They think about it every year, and some years they get a flu shot, and some years they don't. What would you say to someone who is trying to decide whether to get a flu shot this year? I would encourage them to get a flu shot this year. My reasoning behind that is we want to decrease disease burden as much as possible. The additional burden of either a co-infection or an infection, a post-infection process of SARS-CoV-2 after an influenza infection will certainly put an additional burden on the healthcare system. We can prevent a possibility of overwhelming the system with a twindemic by uh, an influenza vaccination that will hopefully decrease the severity of influenza in the vast majority of individuals, right? What What is the benefit of a flu vaccine, both to the individual as well as to the community? The benefit to the individual is you lessen the probability of severe disease. You may, in healthy young adults, become exposed but not even know that you were infected. All of that is beneficial to those that are in and around you, particularly when you're gonna be in close family conditions, i.e. you're not gonna see spread within a family unit. So you decrease the amount of spread of virus by vaccination. Very young children and older adults don't have a developed immune system, or as you get older, you lose your response to these agents. So getting a vaccine basically stimulates your immune system to be able to have a more robust response to that agent and hopefully prevent a more severe disease scenario. So clearly there's a benefit to getting the flu vaccine, but we do have to get our flu vaccine on an annual basis. 
Do you think that we are likely to see a scenario where COVID becomes similar to the flu in that we have to be vaccinated against it on an annual basis? Or do you think that we will be able to develop some sort of immunity? My personal opinion is this virus will be with us for a while. You must remember that even when we develop a vaccine, if individuals don't take the vaccine, that leaves a portion of the population that is susceptible. And there always will be a portion that's susceptible because new infants, while they may get maternal antibody early on in their life, they have to develop an immune system. And part of that is exposure. So there will be continued spread of this virus. That's my prediction for a long period of time. The elderly and immunosuppressed will still be susceptible. Basically what's gonna happen is just like influenza, a serious infections and deaths are always in younger children or in older individuals who not only have a waning immune response, but underlying conditions that also predispose them to a more fulminant course of say influenza. But who knows if we'll be able to develop a universal vaccine. People are working on that for influenza as well to try to develop a vaccine that would essentially do what the smallpox vaccine did, which is eliminate the disease from the human population. Do you think that there is a point during this pandemic when we will reach a level of exposure sufficient to provide herd immunity? The herd immunity is that you get to a point where the vast majority of the population has an antibody response, right? I still think there's going to be vulnerable populations in the society that will allow this virus to remain circulating while it may not cause as much disease in the, the general population. It can be frustrating when we see someone, you know, either not wearing a mask or not practicing social distancing. Given that there is this debate over the merit of some of these defensive measures, do you have any advice for our listeners on how to address those type of situations? My perspective is science is always kind of shades of gray, but I think the data is fairly compelling that when you look at the Southern Hemisphere and the absence of virus, particularly influenza virus in the Southern Hemisphere where they practice social distancing, mask and hand washing is compelling enough to me as a virologist to say that, you know, this stuff does work. It behooves us to try to do that so we be, we're good citizens and show others that not only we're concerned about ourselves, and our immediate loved ones, but we're concerned about each other. I understand it's sometimes not pleasant, but on the other hand, the consequences of this infection for those individuals who are susceptible and will become very ill are devastating. It's one of those things where a little bit of loss of personal freedom can result in a great deal of social grace that we seem to have somewhat lost. You know, the winter months are holiday time, you know, where you spend time with family, adult children come home, 
college students come home, you know, you spend more time together indoors. Given the circumstances this year, is there any advice that you have for us as it relates to maintaining some of those traditions? This is difficult for everyone because these are traditions that have gone on for generations. And it's just an expected way that we live our lives. But given the current situation and given the consequences, from my perspective, just saying, well, it's Thanksgiving or it's Christmas or it's Hanukkah, whatever. Yes, we would like to do all those things. Wouldn't want to go to church or synagogue or whatever your religious background is. Because we need, as humans, that interaction. But on the other hand, the consequences of that could be dire, almost to the point of potentially breaking our healthcare system. One has to look at it and balance, yes, we all want to get together. But on the other hand, if you lose your life or you lose the life of a loved one, you have to think about this very carefully and weigh the, the, the risks and benefits. And I think the risks right now outweigh the benefits. And I know that's a very difficult thing to say. That's very helpful, thank you. The other topic that I think about is this transition to you know, larger group uh, events. You know, so in the early stages of the pandemic, we were encouraged not to assemble in groups larger than six or 10. And now, you know, we're hearing in some states that you can assemble in groups up to 25. Can you talk a little bit about the the effect of larger groups and the possible rate of infection? I think we've seen clear evidence of what happens when you increase the number of individuals in social gatherings in close proximity to one another without practicing good hand hygiene without practicing the wearing of masks because it sends a political connotation. I'm not interested in the politics. What I'm interested in is trying to keep individuals safe and having them be able to live a reasonable life even under the restrictions of what we see today. Big social gatherings are exactly what caused these what are called super spreader events. One individual can infect four, five, six, 10, 15, 20 people. And they may have to be displaying no symptoms at all, may look perfectly normal. That's the difficulty here is that not everybody will get symptoms. I'd also like to caution people about one other. We've known about this virus now for 10 months, let's say 12 months if you will assume that it started to spread as early as November in China. But what we don't know are the long-term effects. This virus is very aggressive. It attacks endothelial cells. It can enter any organ in the body. What we don't know is the long-term consequence. And a 20-year-old who gets an infection today may have no discernible consequences, but we don't know what happened to that individual's heart. But we don't know what happened to that individual's kidney or their lungs. 30 years from now, 
that may cause that individual a lot of problems. I can't say that I know that. I just worry about it. I'm not only worried about what's happening today, I'm worried about what could potentially happen in the very well said. I uh, I very much appreciate your uh, your talking to us today. You've probably been in that situation, Dr. Young, where someone, you know, you either meet them for the first time or they find out what you do for work and the way that you've spent your career. And they say to you, what do you think about this COVID-19 stuff? What's your response? My response to that would be from a virologist standpoint. This is fascinating. So professionally, this has just been an amazing sequence of events that I am glad I was able to participate. But from a personal and a population standpoint, I would say that we really need to understand that we may have to sacrifice to prevent infection, the consequences of that infection in terms of long-term hospitalization, and then ultimately death. My take-home message would be the distancing is important. I believe that mask wearing is important, and I believe that hand washing is important. I know it's difficult, but we need not only to think about ourselves and our families, but we need to think about society in general. If we don't sacrifice some of our individual liberties, we won't survive as a society. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Science with a Twist. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our podcast for other great stories like this one. And don't forget to leave us a review. As always, we want to thank all of our listeners for being a part of Science with a Twist and hope that you're all staying safe and healthy.